here's the way I'd put it. There's a trade-off. We can absolutely embrace more low-skill immigration, but it's likely going to be expensive. It's likely going to mean some serious adjustments in our culture and our safety net and much else. Maybe that's what we want to do. Maybe that's a good idea. Maybe we should embrace it. Let's not pretend that there won't be trade-offs, that there won't be changes, and that some of those changes might be pretty painful. Now, I think that actually someone could make a totally reasonable argument Yes, maybe it's going to be difficult, but gosh darn it, we've got to do it. It's essential. Okay, fair enough. But then don't try to dodge the fact that there really are trade-offs to be had. Hi, you're listening to Season 2 of Keeping It Civil, a production of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. I'm your host, Duncan Minch. In this podcast, I interview scholars, writers, and intellectuals about the American political tradition and the state of intellectual life in the United States. The point of the podcast is to have an intellectual exchange of views on political, civic, and social issues in American life. Many of the guests on the podcast are part of the school's speaker series, which invites liberal progressives and conservative voices that we feel are important for the advancement of civil and liberal education today. Who benefits most from low-skill immigration? Who is hurt by it? Could immigration save struggling entitlement programs in industrialized countries where so many have stopped having children? On today's podcast, I'll be speaking with Raihan Salam, president at the Manhattan Institute. He is the author of Melting Pot or Civil War, A Son of Immigrants Makes the Case Against Open Borders. This interview was recorded in early October during Salam's visit to Tempe. Oh, and one last thing. Our school, which we refer to as Skettle, in case you didn't know, is launching a webinar series this spring called The Pandemic Dialogues, where Skettle faculty will discuss key historical texts on pandemics and how they are handled. The first conversation will be with Skettle faculty member Catherine Zuckert, Skettle director Paul Carice, and renowned Thucydides scholar Clifford Orwin of the University of Toronto. It will take place online on April 6th, and you can register for it on the Skettle website. All right, and now for my interview with Rehan Salam. So let's start off fairly abruptly, I guess. You argue that standard issue, I think this is your phrase, or typical immigration activists are crushingly naive. How so? There is a general unwillingness to think about trade-offs. There is oftentimes a simplification of some of the issues surrounding what it means to incorporate people into the safety net, what it means to incorporate people into civic life, how migrants vary significantly depending on the endowments they bring with them, culturally and otherwise. There is a romantic sensibility that people bring to the issue that is oftentimes pretty counterproductive in thinking about it rigorously, for starters. Yeah. So one of the one of the stats that you threw out in the book, which I found really eye-opening, and I was actually just mentioning it in the previous interview I did with Tomas Jimenez, is that recent surveys have shown that 700 million people worldwide who are currently in what we would fairly describe as poor countries would prefer to move openly by their own distinction to a rich country. 700 million. And of that 700 million, 160, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I think 160-something, identified the United States is their top choice. Also, obviously, we cannot let 160 million people into a country of 320 million. But why is that not necessarily obvious, especially since this concept of 
open borders is, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say it's spreading like wildfire on social media, but it's become a larger, almost bullet point, talking point for people on the radical left and even some people who are not necessarily on the openly radical left to advocate. One needs to approach these surveys pretty carefully. I recall using it for illustrative purposes more than anything else. But when you think about the dynamics of migration, asking a question like that gives you some rough sense of magnitudes. But in practice, if you really did have openness, there are many other things that would come to the fore. One is that you will have migrant cascades that respond to the fact that, for example, if I have relatives who live in a certain place, if I have a larger group of compatriots who live in a certain place, it makes it more attractive for me to live there. It essentially lowers the frictions. It lowers the costs associated with moving from one place to another. That number is a bit of a snapshot. It's an abstraction. It's not factoring in all of the other obstacles, barriers one would face. Even if you're leaving aside the matter of whether or not one would be able to lawfully migrate from one place to another. That's why when you're talking about the first migrant moving from a given village or even a given country to a new one, it's very different from talking about the 200th or the 1,000th or the 100,000th. And when you're looking at our conversation about immigration, it tends to blur those distinctions. And when you're thinking about the long-term trajectory of a particular migrant community, it really does depend on those dynamics of size, of linguistic familiarity, and much else. So I think, you know, why don't people think about those long-run implications? I guess because, you know, you see what happens in any given moment, and also you talk about things in abstract ways when you're really talking about concrete particulars. If you look at the history of immigration restriction in the United States, for example, there is a very striking development if you're looking at the early 1900s, which is that the people who made the restrictionist movement a success were in many cases themselves either immigrants or second-generation Americans, that is to say the children of immigrants. They didn't think of themselves as immigrants first and foremost. Rather, they thought of themselves as people who became incorporated into various different American communities, or they thought of themselves as separate and distinct from some of the newcomers that were arriving in that period. The restrictionist movement succeeded when you had a critical mass of people who were themselves second-generation, and in some cases immigrants themselves. These were oftentimes folks from northwestern Europe, let's say Ireland, let's say the German-speaking part of Europe. And basically, they saw a distinction between their experience and that of more recent arrivals. One of the big live debates during this time was over literacy and whether or not you had folks who were literate in their native languages, let alone in English. And so when you're looking at these migrants from Northwestern Europe, they tended to be literate. And also, they oftentimes, you know, and particularly when you're talking about second generation folks, they just thought of themselves in a different way. And they thought of there being some sort of break between them and, let's say, migrants from Southern and Eastern Europe. Now, when you're thinking about the immigration debate today, we oftentimes look backwards. We are looking back to a period that really is a period that has arguably ended, but a period of mass migration from Mexico in particular. Now, that mass migration has really slowed down. There's still some of it, but it's you know kind of almost come to a halt, partly because Mexico is aging more rapidly than the United States. 
So when people think about this debate today, when they think about, you know, kind of let's relax enforcement, let's have a more permissive policy, it's often in the context of a cultural politics that's about welcoming this Mexican influx, welcoming that transformation, welcoming the consequences of that transformation. However, when you're thinking about this debate 20, 30, 40 years in the future, you're actually not talking about folks coming from what has become, you know, lower middle income, middle income country, a North American country, a country where there are kind of deep cultural continuities. You're talking about something that could wind up being very, very different. And thinking back to that change that you saw in the early 1900s, one could easily imagine a scenario where Mexican-Americans, second and third generation Mexican-Americans of the future would say, well, wait a second, the Mexican immigrant influx was one thing, but these other migrants we're talking about from are a Guatemala different thing entirely. Or from El Salvador or Honduras. That's less, you know, because I think that there are some ties there, perhaps, and also that's something that's happening in the very near term. But when you're thinking about migration from South Asia or from some certain Africa or what have you, you know, kind of in the distant future, it could be a very, very different story. So when people are talking about immigration in the abstract, they're typically grounding it in some experience, in something that they see, something that is familiar to them. So in a way, saying that I embrace immigration or, you know, kind of I want a more permissive approach to this could mean, hey, I really love the America of 2019. I love the cultural mix that you see in certain major gateway cities. And that's something that I really celebrate. They don't necessarily think about the discontinuity. They don't necessarily think about how the future might actually be pretty different from the past. And I think that that's something that's a complicating factor. And of course, people don't think about it. So again, people just go to these well, people don't think big about any of these things. Oh, I mean, sure. They're not thinking about yeah. any of these intricacies. And I think that's both on the radical left and on the radical right. Sure. And maybe even many people in between. This idea that immigrants who have been here for longer don't see their interests as the same as immigrants who are coming immediately, especially illegal immigrants, is something that most people seem to be completely unaware of. And it was something that was involved with the Trump campaign to a certain extent, because when Trump surprised everyone, didn't surprise me at all. And one of the arguments I made to people was that, look, he doesn't need to get that many actual, quote unquote, Latinos to vote for him in order for these numbers to be way wrong and for him to be much higher than people are assuming because people just assumed, oh, everyone who's quote-unquote Latino or co-Hispanic, well, of course, they're not going to vote for Trump. Whereas many Mexican-Americans or Central Americans who've been living here for a couple of generations, or maybe not even that long, did not see Trump in quite the same light as people would expect. I had a student at the University of Texas at Austin who was a second-generation Mexican-American who was a proud, proud Trump supporter. And he was from the border. And his argument was, no, this is out of control. We need to do something this. Well, there is a very broad spectrum of opinion in any group. One thing I will observe is that when you look at people of Latin American origin in the United States, in terms of how people identify, you see very, very different patterns going from the first to the second to the third generation, number one. When you're looking at the first generation, one thing that's important to keep in mind is that you have lots of folks who choose not to naturalize at all, period. So when you're looking at naturalized citizens, they are a subset of that larger universe of foreign-born folks residing in the United States. Within that subset, whether or not people participate politically, they typically participate in lower levels than native-born citizens. But also, when you're looking at how people 
people identify, there are categories that we oftentimes use in journalism and academia. We refer to folks who are Hispanic, folks who are Latinx, etc. And as it happens, people of Latin American origin, particularly in the first generation, they are far more likely to identify with their country of origin than with that sort of pan-ethnic category. And actually, those who identify with a pan-ethnic category, Hispanic, Latinx, etc., are actually matched by the number of people, foreign-born people of Latin American origin, who identify as American. When you're looking at the second and third generation, for example, these pan-ethnic categories don't have a lot of purchase. And yet the pan-ethnic category is very pervasive in the intellectual discourse surrounding these issues. So when you're trying to use this as a category of political analysis, I think it can mislead you. It's funny that you say this, because this is exactly what we, Tomas Jimenez and I just spoke about, and I made almost this exact argument. I said this is part of what people tend not to understand about Latin, that this term is not useful. That doesn't help us, A, understand the culture, because it's Latin is not a culture. It's not that broad. Everyone who speaks Spanish is not a race, just as everyone who is Muslim is not a race or one thing. It doesn't help us. And especially when we're talking about something so broad with so many different groups coming in over such a long period of time over so many areas. And there are, of course, other dimensions at work, too, if you look at folks of Latin American origin who are Pentecostal who are LDS, any number of things. If you look at the number of folks who are observant Catholics, I mean, there are a lot of other dimensions that are worth keeping in mind. Do you live in a rural area? Do you live in a a large metro? That's been historically a pretty big divide, too, because, of course, the place you live, you oftentimes take in the political sensibilities of that place in various ways. It's, you know, kind of one of the ways that assimilation works. So well, and I also think religion that, uh, is such a, a key on. part of identity. Yes. And not for everyone, of course, but certainly for many. Yep. Well, so you write in the book that one of the biggest things we need to avoid is essentially ethnic warfare. I don't think you use that exact term. Mainly like European Americans or white Americans having a parged edge response where both ethnicity and class blend together if we continue to allow low-skill immigration from the South, I guess, primarily, that ethnicity and class will continue in a much more drastic way to blend together. And that if that is the case, this could have drastic consequences going forward. And I don't think I'm doing a very good job of summarizing your argument. So please help me. I think having a thoughtful, balanced, measured immigration policy is a good idea for many reasons. I wouldn't say that it's simply that if you have this or that policy, therefore it's going to lead to this catastrophic consequence. But yes, I do think that this goes back to thinking about our identities in a more multidimensional way. You could think of yourself as, for example, a Protestant from Boston who loves the NBA, or you could think of yourself primarily in racial or ethnic terms. That's going to depend on the conversation you find yourself in. That's going to depend on the context, which identities are activated. And there are certain modes of political conflict that can activate one's ethnic identity. And I think that there are you know, a number of forces. Immigration is one of them, but there are many others besides that I think are raising the salience of some identities over others. And that's something that I think we ought to be mindful of in all of our conversations about policy. And I certainly think it should shape how we think about immigration, too. Well, so why would, if I'm getting your argument correct, 
if we continue to allow low-skill immigration in, that this is not something that we curtail and try to focus intently on figuring out who of the high-skill populations that we want to let in, or medium-skill, I don't know if that's even a term. Why is that particularly risky at activating certain ethnic conflicts? When you think about how people are incorporated into a society, there are a few different things that are at play. One of them is language. If you speak the local language fluently, what it does is give you access to a wider set of social networks. It gives you access to not just in economic life, but in social life as well, in forming friendships, forming relationships, and much else. When you do not speak the dominant local language, it is something that might incline you to essentially stick to a narrower network of co-ethnics. And languages, you know, those are things that can change over time. People can adopt a new language over time. They certainly can familiarize themselves. If you look around the world, there are about 1.7 billion people who are English language learners. It's a quite large number of people. And that's one reason why American popular culture has so much reach. It's not something that is, you know, terribly exotic or rare. But I think that's certainly one thing that comes into play. And also there's, when it comes to skills, when it comes to educational attainment, it's certainly not the end-all be-all. There are other things that matter. There are other things that come into play. But if you look at the United States today compared to the United States of 100 years ago, one big difference is that educational attainment in the native-born population has gone up considerably. It hasn't gone up as much as some would like, but it's certainly gone up. If you're looking at the native-born population of the United States, it has a much higher level of educational attainment than was the case 100 years ago. Now, when when you're looking at migrants from southern and eastern Europe 100 years ago, they had pretty low levels of educational attainment, but the gap between their level of educational attainment and the native-born population in the United States was not very large. If you're looking today, if you're someone with a modest level of educational attainment, just by definition, compared to this higher level in the United States right now, what that means is that there's a much bigger gap to close. And that gap matters for all sorts of reasons. One is what is called assortative mating. That is the fact that it is increasingly true that people marry other people with similar levels of education. People form friendships with people of similar levels of education. So low-skill immigration meant something very different 100 years ago than it does today. Another reason it means something very different today than it did 100 years ago is because we now have the ability to offshore production. When you're thinking about the industrial economy of earlier eras, you really needed a large, low-skill workforce if you wanted to manufacture complex, sophisticated products. Today, a lot of that work can be done overseas at pretty low cost. That doesn't necessarily mean that there's no desire, there's no appetite for low-skill migration. There certainly are all sorts of things that folks can do with modest skill levels. What it does mean, however, is that it changes the politics, and it also changes the sense of urgency. The chief beneficiaries of low-skill immigration are low-skill immigrants themselves. And that's something that is certainly something that has enormous humanitarian value, and it also can lend a certain cultural vitality to a country, to a city, and much else. There certainly are other valuable things. But, you know, narrowly speaking, when you're looking at who is actually accruing the income, overwhelmingly is flowing to immigrants themselves. And so when you're looking at folks in the destination country, that becomes, therefore, a different kind of question. It becomes a question of, do you want to embrace this altruism more than it's a question of, hey, here is a powerful self-interested case for you to do this. You're listening to Keeping It Civil. I'm Duncan Minch, and today I'm speaking with Raihan Salam, president at the Manhattan Institute and author of Melting Pot or Civil War. I'm Paul Carice, 
director of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. We launched Keeping It Civil because we believe in the power of intellectual dialogue to both renew our civic life and remind us of the value of liberal arts learning. At the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership, we are restoring space for civil discourse across divergent views on human, civic, and academic issues. Our majors and minors undertake a liberal education to discuss moral and political thought, economic thought, and America's ideals and constitutional principles. They study important historical moments and leaders, and they experience leadership challenges through special seminars, internships, and programs. This broad foundation prepares them to be ethical, adaptive leaders in their chosen professions or civil society or in public affairs. We hope you'll learn more about the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University by visiting scetl.asu.edu. The School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University, a new class of leaders. Welcome back. You're listening to Keeping It Civil. Let's continue our conversation with the Manhattan Institute's Raihan Salam. Well, so, I mean, why do you think that people have trouble understanding that those of low or moderate skill who are already within the country have somewhat reasonable reasons to resist low-skill immigration? This is often something that is part of the dialogue, especially in academe and I would say most mainstream media, at least mainstream left media, where basically the attitude is, well, look, if you're against immigration from the South, and when I say immigration from the South, I mean coming from the Southern border. And as you point out in your book, it's true that a lot of the, if not the far majority of the immigration, especially illegal, is very low skill. Why is it that people struggle to understand that there is an economic problem here for people and that you can understand why they would be resentful of having more people come in and compete for the same jobs that they're competing? Well, I think it's a little bit tricky when you're thinking about the economic dimension. One thing is that the economy isn't static. And so when you have a big influx of labor, what that could mean is that you start seeing the rise of new business models that are able to make use of that new low-skill labor. So I don't think of it as kind of straightforwardly necessary a matter of kind of one group competing with another group. When you're looking at, let's say, new low-skill migration coming from, let's say, Guatemala, the folks who are subject to competition are previous low-skill migrants from Guatemala, because those are two groups that have very similar skill sets. Whereas if you're talking about someone who is a person with modest skills, who is a native-born U.S. citizen, they will typically have a pretty different set of skills from that migrant from Guatemala. And so one argument that one hears from a lot of economists is that, you know, those two workers, they might both be low skill when you're looking at years of educational attainment, but actually their skills might be complementary. For example, think about a restaurant. That person from another country who doesn't necessarily speak English quite as well is not going to work the front of the house in the restaurant, but they could work in the back of the house. And then they could both work together in a pretty constructive way. So there certainly might be some competition in some cases, but actually my argument does not chiefly rest on the idea that there's wage competition because there certainly could be complementarity. It rests more on the fact, and you actually see this with a lot of survey data, Americans who are concerned about large-scale, low-scale immigration are typically less concerned about wage competition than they are concerned about competition for benefits. And this is... You mean entitlements? Sure. You could say entitlements, but also other benefits as well beyond Social Security and Medicare. 
When you're thinking about immigration in the context of America in the early 1900s, this was an era before we built up a lot of social programs that are designed to redistribute income from folks who are more affluent to folks who are less affluent. And there's a very big debate over how to think about the net fiscal impact of immigration. That is, okay, well, how do we take into account the new tax revenues that stem from new workers versus the benefits that people receive? Now, the thing that's really important to understand about this debate is that the net fiscal impact is static. It's not fixed. When you introduce new social programs that are meant to be redistributive, then you're changing the net fiscal impact. When you are moving from a more regressive tax code to a more progressive tax code, you change it, or vice versa. All of these things factor in to the conversation. If the United States had, let's say, a purely regressive tax code, a head tax, and if there were no social benefits that are designed to redistribute income, then immigration wouldn't really have a big effect when it comes to competition for benefits and what have you, right? Because everyone is paying into the system in this totally regressive way. Everyone is getting benefits in this totally regressive way. Therefore, it doesn't really matter. But when you have a tax and transfer system that is meant to be progressive, that is meant to redistribute from high-income households to low-income households... Or even from medium income. Sure. Then it can actually matter quite a lot. A lot depends on the exact design of those programs. And this is something that people tend to evade. They tend to evade it in a lot of different ways. So that strikes me as an issue that is pretty hard to understand, unless you explain it the way that you just did. But it also strikes me that affirmative action is a big part of this. I think when you're talking about folks, when you're talking about migration and benefits, I just want to just really underscore this. So there is some complexity there, right? Because when you're talking about folks who are unauthorized, they are typically not receiving benefits or they're receiving some benefits, but not others. When you are talking about people who are lawful immigrants, green card holders, they are barred from certain benefits for a five-year period, although they're children might not be. So there's a lot of complexity there, and I want to acknowledge that. When it comes to your point about racial preferences or affirmative action, I definitely think that this plays a role in the debate and how these changes are perceived. There was a really fascinating book published in the late 1990s called Collision Course that was arguing that when you look at the civil rights revolution and the post-1965 wave of immigration, they intersected in a bunch of complicated ways. And a big picture part of it is that you introduced affirmative action and racial preferences to benefit historically disadvantaged minorities, domestic minorities, particularly African-Americans to a lesser extent, indigenous people to a much lesser extent. You had some Mexican origin populations that had been you know, very poor in the U.S. Southwest for a very long period of time. Then you have a huge influx of folks from the non-European world, from call it the global south. And these were people who were then coded as non-white. And they were coded, at least in principle, as people who belonged to these pan-ethnic groups that were conceived of as disadvantaged, despite the fact that, well, wait a second, there is some complexity here. So, for example, if you're talking about African-Americans, multi-generational African-Americans who are the descendants of folks who were brought as slaves to what is now the United States, that's one thing. If you're talking about people who, let's say, are recent arrivals from West Africa, or even double migrants, people who are of African origin, but then who grew up in the UK, who are then coming to the United States, you know, you're talking about people who might actually have very high skill levels, people who might have pretty significant endowments of human capital and family wealth and much else. Does it really make sense to conceive of them as being in the same category? There's a lot of 
of ignorance of how much immigration, especially from Europe, is involved in the history of Central and South America. That, in fact, you know, most people probably, it is fair to say, from certainly from South America, where you have countries like Argentina, which is 90% of European origin, and Brazil, which is 60% of European origin. But large parts of Mexico are of incredible, I don't know the exact percentages off the top of my head, but a large parts of them are mostly of European origin. They've also experienced immigration from other areas. There are a few different things going on at once. One is when you look at the argument over racial preferences, over affirmative action, one conception is that these programs are designed to redress an historical injustice. And that is a conception that has fallen out of favor for a variety of reasons, including, you know, there are legal issues at work there too, to the idea that diversity has some pedagogical benefit and that that is a legitimate reason to establish these preferences. When you think of it as trying to redress an historical injustice, it's not totally clear that it makes sense to count immigrants and second-generation folks you know, in the category of folks you want to compensate. If you think of it through the lens of diversity, then perhaps it makes sense. But the problem there is that, well, what does diversity mean? Which kinds of diversity are actually enhancing the educational experience? And so, you know, that's something that can collapse into incoherence. So that's certainly one thing that's at work. But one thing that's, I think, implicit in your question and this kind of larger set of issues you're introducing is that there is a big generational divide. If you're looking at the United States of, let's say, 1970 or 1980, the foreign-born share of the population was much, much smaller than it is today. If I recall correctly, in 1970, it was under 5%. And of that foreign-born population, much of it was very old. If you're looking at the foreign-born share of the population now, it's closer to 13 14%. And that, in a way, understates the cultural impact of migration because that's actually a younger population than it had been, let's say, in 1970. If you're looking at younger generations, for example, if you're looking at school-age children in the United States right now, it's around a quarter, a bit more than a quarter, are either immigrants or second generation. They're either immigrants or the children of immigrants. That is obviously a heck of a lot bigger than 13 14%. And what you're seeing is this serious disconnect between older Americans, older Americans who are disproportionately native-born, and younger Americans who are much more connected to this post-1965 immigration wave. And when you're looking at any number of different political debates, any number of debates over redistribution and much else, you have this implicit debate, too, that speaks to this cultural divide. So you have older Americans who are thinking, well, wait a second. Okay, so you want me to redistribute, or rather, let's say, okay, so I'm collecting Social Security and Medicare. You want to cut into those programs in order to finance benefits for younger people, younger people who are not my grandchildren, but they're people who come from this very different cultural dispensation. I'm not saying that's a noble impulse. I'm not saying that's good or bad, but that's certainly something that plays in to some of these debates. The sense that there's a kind of alienation from younger generations that oftentimes have a different cultural composition. I'm not arguing any of this is noble or ill-noble necessarily taken aside. I'm trying to understand it. And I think that's what you're trying to do in terms of your book is you're trying to say, hey, look, if this keeps going the way that it's currently going, we really could be headed for some kind of ethnic catastrophe, maybe not necessarily something like the Balkans. I don't think you put it in something that stark, but something ugly. Sharper uh, conflict, sure. That is definitely not preferable, right? So we need to get our head around what's actually happening and how we can try and 
direct immigration in a way that will be productive for everyone, which is not a discussion that we're currently having. You conclude the book, and I, I don't mean to ruin the book, we need more people who are more willing to cross borders in a metaphorical sense, that they're willing to openly debate these topics and willing to compromise and willing to have an honest discussion about what's actually going on and what the effects might actually be. And look, I think that I made a certain set of arguments, but I do think that I also will acknowledge that there's a lot of complexity here and there are big benefits to immigration. I was referring earlier on to some of these demographic changes, the fact that the U.S. population, like the population of pretty much every market democracy is aging. And that's, you know, certainly one thing immigration can do. It can add a measure of demographic vitality. But actually, even when you look at that, when you look at current U.S. immigration policies, they actually don't systematically take youth into account, for example. Uh, You don't actually get ahead of the line if you're younger, as is the case with many other immigration systems. If you look at the Canadian system, the Australian system, they will actually prefer people who are younger which you know seems coherent when you're thinking about the idea that you want immigration to be a tool to rejuvenate the population. There are lots of things about U.S. immigration policy, I would argue, that are not terribly coherent. Now, that makes sense because this is something that reflects an accretion of different laws over time. But one thing that I find a little bit disappointing is that some of the ways that people champion immigration are things that would actually lead you to want to change U.S. immigration policy in pretty significant Give ways. Give me an example. Well, one example is just going back to talking about age, you know, just the fact that we don't really have a meaningful preference. And actually, when you look at U.S. immigration policy, most green cards are issued to people on the basis of family ties. Now, those green cards that are issued on the basis of family ties are divided between those that fall under a family preference category and those that extend to people who are considered immediate relatives. Immediate relatives include people who are minor children, as you might expect. A spouse totally makes sense. It also includes the adult parents of U.S. citizens. Now, the thing here is that that is something that ages the immigration influx into the United States. And it's not the only way you could theoretically do it. Now, this is something that's a very popular idea, proposing any changes to this. It's very tough. It's very unpopular. But if you look at what the Canadians do, they say you can bring your parent to Canada under a five-year renewable visa. However, our expectation is that if you do that, you will provide for the insurance, the health insurance and the long-term care insurance for that Oh, they don't get on the national insurance. Right. The expectation is that you will be held responsible for it. In the United States, on a number of occasions, we've passed laws. During the 1990, in 1996, there was a law passed that tried to establish responsibility of family members who sponsor immigrants. The idea is that you would have your income assessed to see if you could, in fact, care for this immigrant relative, if that immigrant relative became indigent, if that immigrant relative was for whatever reason in need. And then there was another provision for sponsor recovery, meaning that if this relative that you sponsored eventually did need access to safety net benefits, you would be on the hook for it. However, sponsor recovery has almost never been tried in practice. Now, if you actually had sponsor recovery, it would change how people think about sponsoring relatives. They would suddenly think, wow, I want to be very careful and thoughtful about this. They wouldn't necessarily stop sponsoring relatives, but it would change the calculation to some degree. So there are things that are provisions of U.S. law that really have fallen by the wayside, and that actually they've fallen by the wayside for so long that people now think of them as outrageous. 
despite the fact that to a lot of Americans they would sound you know like well, how do you think that, well so how do you think that happened though? I mean things have changed dramatically over the last 20 years and I would say dramatically post Trump the notion of open borders was logically obscene to almost everyone until recently and now we even have I wouldn't say the Democratic candidates have embraced the notion because that would be entirely unfair but you can tell a lot of times in the democratic party debates that they have trouble completely distancing themselves from it and that is a pretty big change to say any of the things that you just mentioned in terms about being open about hey look i mean immigrants are going to be a cost on the social safety net that would be almost first of all i just want to be clear some might be under some designs of a safety net program i wouldn't say that that's uniformly true of everyone some immigrants might represent a net fiscal cost. Many others will represent a net fiscal benefit. It depends on the characteristics well, no, I, I, of the immigrant I'm not saying that that's what you did say, but just even having an open discussion of which will and in right. what circumstances okay. yep. is almost yep. off limits. Yep. One big thing that's happened, there are many different components to this, but if you're thinking about the most recent period since Donald Trump's election, part of this is a reflection of the fact that politics is thermostatic. That is, there is a great deal of evidence that the public moves in the opposite direction of whoever's in the White House. So there's a political scientist who's done a lot of work on this thermostatic thesis, James Stimson, and who's basically tracked what he calls the policy mood of the American public for many decades. And if you look at the Obama presidency, basically, by the time you got a few years into the Obama presidency, the American public had moved well to the right on many questions relating to the size of government and much else. If you look at Donald Trump, he's had a similarly galvanizing effect. Since 2015, since he launched his presidential campaign, the American public has moved in the opposite direction of his favored policies on immigration. People are more likely to favor increasing immigration levels. They're more likely to favor a more permissive stance towards unauthorized migration and much else. Now, beneath the surface, there's a degree of polarization there. You see Republicans hardening their position. You see folks on the Democratic side who might have previously been more skeptical about unauthorized immigration moving sharply in a different direction. You see this on other issues as well. If you look at support for free trade among Democrats, it is far higher now than it was before Donald Trump was inaugurated as president. Same thing for support for NATO. Okay, so There's why, just this, uh, why, why this why reaction. This, I mean, it's interesting, and I can see it. Why would this be the case? Well, there's a long literature as to why that's the case. I certainly couldn't give you chapter and verse on it. One simple, straightforward explanation is that you see an idea that becomes very visible. It's talked about a great deal. So one interpretation is that then that idea is introduced, and then it's met with a lot of hostility in the press, and that shapes people's thoughts and expectations. But another simpler explanation is that partisanship is a very powerful force. And basically, one view of partisanship is that we choose our parties based on our policy preferences. Another view of partisanship is that it's rooted in social identity. I see myself as this kind of person, therefore I favor this policy. So, you know, let's say I think of myself as a Republican, but now Republicans are for tariffs rather than for free trade. Therefore, I will be for tariffs, whereas before I was for free trade. You know, there are any number of reasons that could be true. If you're looking at folks on the Democratic side, when you're looking at other people who identify as Democrats, other people you trust, other people who are thought leaders who are center left, they're changing their opinion on immigration issues. They're talking about these issues in a different way. Or it could be that you know, you're know you reacting to, for example, the idea that there have been harsh enforcement policies. You see stories in the press about this and you react against them. There are any number of possibilities. What you do see among many Democratic candidates is this talk about decriminalizing unauthorized border crossing. And also you see renewed discussion 
discussion about extending safety net benefits, not just to lawful immigrants, but also to folks who are unauthorized, basically blurring the distinction between those who are lawful and unlawful well, migrants. And that's a big change. Well, you saw this in the Democratic Party presidential debates where they were asked, would your national health insurance policy cover illegal immigrants? And I don't remember exactly how many and who raised their hand, but most of the major candidates, and I think it was the majority of them, well, I mean, this is a dramatic. I mean, this is inconceivable 12 years ago. Yes, I think that's right. I think it would have been inconceivable 12 years ago. Then the question is how seriously we ought to take this change. Because if you view this change as being thermostatic, as being driven by the fact that, you know, you have someone who belongs to one political party in the White House, and then people just react in this sharply different direction, then you would expect a correction. What you'd expect then is that if there's a Democratic president come 2021, then if there is another border crisis of some kind, if there is something that raises the salience of the immigration issue, then you might see the public rush in the opposite direction. Or it could be that there is some deep, durable, cultural change that's happened. I think that at this point, it's entirely speculation. I suspect that there would be another thermostatic reaction. But I also do recognize that I do think that there is a cultural change. If you look at younger Americans, as recently as 20 years ago, if you looked at what they considered important for them, one thing that was important for them is forming families and having children. The share of younger people who consider that to be a high priority is is far lower today than it was 20 years ago. If you look at how closely people identify with the United States, do people think of themselves as patriotic? That's something that is far more true of older Americans than it is of younger Americans. There are all sorts of cultural changes that might wind up being pretty durable that have an effect on how people look at an issue like migration. I would argue that particularly among many younger intellectuals, the belief that we are citizens of the world and that we ought to have some baseline of skepticism towards the nation state, I think that those views are are more common. Do I believe they're pervasive? Do I believe that that reflects mass opinion? No, I don't. And I believe that that's why, in some ways, I think the intellectual discourse around these issues is out of whack with where I think public opinion is and where it's going to be in the years to come. I would say a lot of what you just described, people who are conceptualize themselves more as part of the global community than the nation state. And and that obviously overlaps with people favoring open borders or at least decriminalizing border crossings and et cetera like this. That's obviously mostly coming from an educated or highly educated part of millennials or zillennials, if we're going to cast it bigger and younger as well. But isn't the question whether or not that endures? So they might think that way in their 20s or maybe even into their 30s. But then once they start to have families and get more rooted. Sure, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know. I suspect, as I said a moment ago, that public opinion is going to change and that you are not going to see durable, widespread mass support for the idea of decriminalizing unauthorized border crossing, etc. But, you know, look, that's speculation on my part, and I'm certainly not going to definitively describe what's going to happen 20 years from now, because there are normative changes that happen. People wind up having very, very different beliefs about these attitudes. Certain beliefs that were widespread become stigmatized. If you look at changing opinion on same-sex marriage, for example, that's something that happens very, very quickly. And there are many people who've changed their minds on that issue who would now be ashamed of the fact they had a different view some time ago. The reason why I believe immigration is a different issue is because I think that there's going to wind up being a pretty serious tension between younger people who favor higher levels of redistribution and younger people who favor a more permissive approach to migration. 
you were referencing this conversation around providing medical care. So if you're both talking about Medicare for all, you know, there's some talk that if you're talking about Medicare for all, this is something that would cost between 35 and $40 trillion over the next 10 years. And, you know, when you talk about some presidential candidates have proposed a wealth tax that would generate, you know, let's say somewhere between, let's be generous, 2 and $5 trillion a year. It's a lot, you know. It's a big gap. It's a big gap, right. And then if you're talking about saying that we are going to welcome all comers and we are going to provide them with very generous, comprehensive medical benefits that are free at the point of service, that's very different from 1900 when people came to the United States, you know, oftentimes with pretty modest skills. And they basically relied on their own communities, their own ethnic religious communities, if they ever fell on hard times. They were certainly not relying on public programs that needed to be very generous because they needed to employ large numbers of skilled professionals to do very, very complicated and expensive work. So I think that there's just a really big tension there. And I think that that tension is going to be resolved one way or another. One way to resolve that tension would be to say, well, we're not going to embrace redistribution anymore. We're going to surrender on that one, but we're going to embrace openness. Or you could say, we're going to embrace redistribution, but we're going to say, hey, we're going to take a more measured approach to openness. If you're looking at Europe, you're seeing a very different political conversation there, partly because many center-left political parties in Europe are recognizing that there's a big tension between having this very expensive and very expansive redistributive apparatus and having very open policies towards folks with limited skills. Now, this, by the way, doesn't apply when you're talking about people who have high earning potential and who will likely pay more into the system than they take out. That's not to say they're better people. That's not to say that they're morally superior in any way, but that's a very different conversation. And that's also something that you're seeing in every market democracy. There is, you know, pretty consistently greater openness to high-skill migrants than there is to low-skill migrants. Well, it strikes me, though, that there's something very big coming down the pike, not just for Western Europe, but for us as well. In Western Europe, obviously, they're having a much more heated and debate about immigration, in part because, as you've talked about in your book, that assimilation is two ways. It's not just that the immigrants coming in are assimilating. It's that immigrants change the culture and kind of force the broader culture, whatever it is, whatever country, to sort of assimilate to their new views or their new culture or their new religion, especially, you know, in Europe's case, it's mostly Muslims coming in. That's going to dramatically change European culture. But they have a problem with the fact that obviously their redistributive policies are very expensive and have to be funded somehow, but they're not having children. The rate of replacement for most women across really almost all the industrialized world, and then includes us, if women are educated, and most education rates for women are very high in Western Europe and Scandinavia, and I imagine they're getting much higher in Southern Europe and Eastern Europe also, they're really not facing replacement. So they're probably going to have to allow immigration to come in unless they can can figure out a way to make things work otherwise. Aren't we sort of facing a similar problem? Isn't the current welfare state, as it's currently constituted, dependent on growth, population growth itself? Or do you think I'm getting something wrong? You're absolutely right that you're seeing smaller family sizes in almost all the market democracies. Israel is one exception. If you are thinking about the safety net, however, one thing to keep in mind is that immigrants age. 
there's this notion that immigrants will rescue these redistributive systems because they will make the population younger, et cetera, et cetera. But again, as I mentioned before, actually, U.S. immigration policies are not doing an especially good job of bringing in youth, partly because you have a very high share of late age migration, the parents of U.S. citizens who have essentially unlimited access to green cards. But when you're looking at employment-based migration, that's actually very tightly constrained in the United States relative to other places. And even kind of there, it's not as though you're actually privileging younger people, number one. Number two, immigrants are converging on native fertility very, very quickly. You're seeing declining birth rates across different U.S. groups. So including immigrants, their birth rates are going down. Their birth rates are going going down 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 too. Well, Well, partly because you're seeing declining birth rates virtually everywhere in the world. The region of the world where you still have above replacement levels, sub-Saharan Africa, even there you're actually seeing a pretty sharp decrease in birth rates. So this is something that is a global phenomenon. That's not to say that you know immigration can't mitigate the problem at the margin, though if you wanted to mitigate that problem, you would actually want to adopt different immigration policies that actually are very deliberate in favoring younger migrants. And also there's the fact that many of our old age social insurance programs have a redistributive component too. So what that means is that, hey, it's great to have workers, but if those workers are earning very low incomes... And if they are, again, going to have see their benefits topped up because we want to have a somewhat progressive system, then, yeah, there's going to be some fiscal benefit, maybe, but not quite as much as you think. And basically, the paradigm for a lot of people when they think about immigration and the safety net is Social Security. Social Security is actually a very unusual program. Another program is Medicare. And when you look at Medicare, the amount that people get into the system versus what they pay into the system is there's a huge, huge difference. Because, again, Medicare is financing a service. It's not just giving you a cash benefit. I think that people are a little bit naive about how much immigration could do. You could drastically increase immigration and then increase the workforce that way. You're talking about increasing it, let's say, 7x, 8x. But here's the thing. Those workers would eventually get old and retire themselves. Can you increase it another 7x or 8x? Well, well, no, because eventually the world's well, going to run out of people. I don't think even people who are, except for the open borders types, are usually arguing for that level of immigration. They're usually just arguing for modest amounts. So if I'm getting you correct, then this is a total mirage. This isn't going to solve the problem. But then doesn't that then really lead to something foundationally wrong with the modern welfare liberal state capitalism? Well, I don't want to say it's a total mirage. At least as currently I constituted. That, I think a thoughtful immigration policy could absolutely help finance the safety net at the margin. I think that it could definitely make a difference. I don't think you can expect it to be a silver bullet. Now, to the other question you raise, I think that's well said. I think that when you're looking at the safety net, there are serious questions about its long-run sustainability, particularly as it relates to medical care. And that's a very big question that takes us pretty far afield. But I do think that you certainly can expect realistic increases in migration to solve the problem of how do we kind of meet those costs without drastic increases in taxes, without just really having serious challenges for the larger economy. Now, one thing I would argue is that in a more affluent society, you expect people to spend more money on medical care. That's not necessarily a bad thing in itself. It's natural that once everyone has, or most people have a toilet, things that people didn't necessarily have a century ago, right? I mean, you expect you're going to spend money on things that improve your quality of life. That's to be expected. But the complicating factor is when those expenditures are happening through government, then it can become more difficult 
to really embrace business model innovation that is going to deliver lower costs. Also, people have certain expectations around how medical care ought to be delivered. There could be lower cost ways to do it that people might resist culturally. When you have third-party payment, no one wants to economize on caring for a grandparent, for example. So I think that there are a lot of cultural complexities that play into why financing healthcare in particular is such a huge challenge. Well, but I mean, it seems like that's going to only reinforce and heighten the tensions that you see potentially coming if we continue to allow low-skill immigration. I don't want to put it so baldly. I think that it's a question of whether or not you—here's the way I'd put it. There's a trade-off. We can absolutely embrace more low-skill immigration, but it's likely going to be expensive. It's likely going to mean some serious adjustments in our culture and our safety net and much else. Maybe that's what we want to do. Maybe that's a good idea. Maybe we should embrace it. Let's not pretend that there won't be trade-offs, that there won't be changes, and that some of those changes might be pretty painful. Now, I think that actually someone could make a totally reasonable argument. Yes, maybe it's going to be difficult, but gosh darn it, we've got to do it. It's essential. Okay, fair enough. But then don't try to dodge the fact that there really are trade-offs to be had. Paint me a picture of how immigration should work in your mind that incorporates or reincorporates would probably be the more correct phrase, the melting pot concept, because you would argue that we've moved away from the melting pot and we need to get back to it, but also embraces the correct amount of skilled workers. Well, I'll tackle one piece of this. Right now, we have a very unusual immigration system by the standards of other market democracies. We have not really modernized the system in a pretty long time. And we have this very sharp binary between folks who enter the country through family ties and those who enter the country via other means. You have a certain number of folks who enter the country as refugees and asylees, a certain number who enter because they're sponsored by employers, et cetera, et cetera. What I would do is talk about blending the category of employment-based and family-based immigration in this way. Beyond immediate relatives, when you're looking to the family preference category, I would say let's not treat that as a separate and distinct category, but rather let's say we're going to have a point system and having a relative in the United States means that you will get some number of points. It won't be the end-all be-all, but it will be a factor taken into consideration. Other factors that will be taken into consideration are whether or not you speak English fluently. To many people, that sounds like a draconian, awful idea. As I mentioned earlier, 1.7 billion people around the world are English language learners. This is not an extremely rare thing. People of every color and creed are learning how to speak English. It's actually not all that rare. That would be another thing that would be a plus factor. Having a job offer from a U.S. employer. One thing people don't realize is that new green cards, a majority of them in many years, go to people who are status adjusters. That is, people who are already in the United States, let's say under an H-1B visa or some other visa, and they are adjusting their status to a permanent visa. I would lean into that. I would leverage that by saying that, hey, you know, there's some folks who've already lived in the country. They've demonstrated that they are employed. They're able to support themselves and what have you. So let's take that into account. I would have a blended system. And the objective of this blended system would be to create a different set of incentives. Right now, if you want to become a lawful permanent resident of the United States, you are much better off trying to find a U.S. citizen to marry than you are to actually gain skills, master the language, and do other things that will help ensure that you will become a successful member of this society and someone who's going to be And able you to see make that as absolutely the wrong way of going about it. Am I, am I getting you correct? We should embrace those things and reward them? I don't think it's 
wrong to say that we should have a more skills-based system. I think we should have a more well, no, skills-based system. No, no, but you're system. saying that if you're here and you're trying to earn the green card or you're trying to earn citizenship and you do the things that you just mentioned, you learn the language, you get greater skills, that that would allow you to have a much greater chance of... Well, actually, I would apply that also to folks who do not live in the United States. If you look at the experience of Fiji, for example, it's a really fascinating story. After you had a series of basically attacks on the Indo-Fijian population, you saw this incredible panic among Indo-Fijians, many of whom were trying to find ways to leave the country, to emigrate, to build a new life elsewhere. And so one thing that happened is that you saw a huge dramatic increase in educational attainment among Indo-Fijians. But that increase in educational attainment closely tracked the Australian point system. Basically, Indo-Fijians were thinking, aha, for me to better my chances of becoming a lawful immigrant in Australia, I should learn these skills, do these things. And that's exactly what people did. Many of them did wind up moving to Australia, but many of them didn't. Instead, they actually just gained those skills and helped build a technology industry in Fiji. So it ended up actually acting as a social service to these outside areas. Exactly. It wound up being something that benefited those Indo-Fijians who moved to Australia because it helped them integrate into the country and helped them to enter the professional middle class. It helped Indo-Fijians who stayed in Fiji and it helped other folks in Fiji as well because it created a new industry there. So I think that when people talk about skilled immigration, they oftentimes think, this is awful. How dare you? My great-grandfather didn't have skill. You know, you're a terrible person for suggesting this. There are all sorts of people who don't have, you know, they're wonderful people. What they don't understand is that people are not fixed. If you change the incentives, people will change in response to the incentives. If you say that we will reward you for gaining certain skills that will help you support yourself and your family and help you thrive in American life, help you be a full participant in American life, it does not mean that you should abandon your native language or abandon your culture and what have you. These are just things that are going to help ensure that you are not ghettoized. They will help ensure that you are not limited in your prospects. And then actually doing that will actually mean that we're not being deceptive. You're actually telling people, hey, by the way, making an America is actually not easy. You know, it can be pretty tough. Here are things you're going to face. Here are things that you're going to be up against. We want to see to it that you have a roadmap that's going to help you. And by the way, not everyone's going to get in. But hey, guess what? In taking those steps, in actually trying to follow that roadmap, you know, now you have skills that are going to be very valuable for you. In Mexico right now, you have a large number of folks who are English speaking, who are taking part in the technology industry. You know, you're actually having U.S. firms that are offshoring work to people who have this kind of level of sophistication, oftentimes because they had experience in the United States. I think that that's not so a tragedy. I, yeah, I think so that could be a very so good So yeah, thing. that could end up raising incomes and raising the output economically of Central American areas if they were having to respond to this. The huge problem with how we talk about immigration is that we see it through the lens of immigrants as victims or saints, as though they are completely fixed, they are not capable of changing. The idea of setting some kind of higher standard is necessarily going to bar huge numbers of people as though actually people cannot change in response to that. And I think that that is a real shame, and I don't think that it sets people up for success. We are out of time. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. You've been listening to Keeping It Civil, a production of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. If you'd like to learn more about our classes or events or the requirements for a major or minor at the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership, go to scetl.asu.edu to learn more. This podcast was produced by Duncan Minch with audio production assistance from Central Sound at Arizona PBS. Don't forget to tell your friends and family about the show and all the great many things we're doing here at Skettle. That is the best way you can show your support and help us grow. Thank you so much.